Hello and welcome to an Evil X episode on carbon markets, specifically in the UK, produced in association with our partner Virtus. I'm Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, and I'm excited to be able to welcome Finley Walker, carbon emissions trader at Virtus, to join us today. While the UK was part of the European Union, the uh, EU emissions trading scheme really ruled the roost. But following that uh, that referendum in 2016, all sorts of things had to be disentangled, including emissions trading. The UK ETS was launched in 2021 with a first trade in May of that year. And the aim of these ETS is, is, is to kind of squeeze out greenhouse gases, the number of emission credits available falling each year. And this, of course, is to help achieve those net zero by 2050 goals. The UK ETS applies to energy intensive industries, power generators, aviation. One of the controversial aspects of the scheme is, is, is the handover of credits to polluters amid concerns that coming down too strongly on emissions will drive industry overseas so-called carbon leakage. As, as the scheme grows, concerns around carbon leakage are likely to increase. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop my, uh, my rambling there and, and, and Finley, I'm going to bring you in. Talk me through how, how, how the UK ETS launched and, and, and where it applies. Thank you very much for having me, Ed. So yeah, the UK ETS system, as you said, began on the 1st of January 2021. And it basically follows on from Brexit as we disentangle from the EU and the EU schemes such as the EU ETS. So in effect, it is the same thing. We moved to pounds from euros and a main thing we did on the UK side of things is try to tighten the scheme even more to really accelerate the emissions reductions targets and move things along slightly faster than the, in the EU at the time. So the main differences are obviously the currency, the fact that the UK now has a significantly smaller market size. And when we became independent, we reduced our share of allowances by 5%. So from the, from the off, the UK market was tighter and we reduced the cap by 4.2 million allowances per year, which is more as a percentage than it is in the EU. So that effectively is how it came about and how it began. And, and, and who needs to worry about it? And I, I suppose possibly even more importantly, who doesn't? Well, I think that there's about 750 installations that are part of the UK ETS. And from a very, very kind of a high level viewpoint, it's basically anything with a chimney, anything producing with a certain size of power generation. Sure, sure, sure. And 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 in terms of that sort of you know tightening the uh, tightening the way in which it works, right? I mean, I suppose that's that's kind of the idea. The uh, you know obviously aiming for that twenty fifty target. How do, how do permits decrease over time? So every year we have two ways of obtaining allowances, and that's the primary and the secondary market. The primary market would be accessing the the auction and the secondary market would be going through traders such as us. Um, every single year, the supply tightens. So by the end of April, every single year, any installation that is part of the UK ETS needs to surrender their allowances in order to comply. Otherwise, there's a fine which goes up every year as well as still needing to pay off the allowances the following year. I suppose in terms of, you know, so it decreases over time. So every year there are fewer credits available. Presumably this means that prices only go up. Um, well, just to be a little um, pernickety, it's not permits or credits, it's UK allowances. This distinction is quite important as it differentiates um, this compliance market from, from uh, different voluntary ones. Um, to answer your question, yes, that should be the case. The idea is that as supply tightens every year, the, the price gets pushed up and up 
And the only way to get around this is by either forking out huge amounts of money to pollute or by reducing emissions involved in production. So over time, the idea is that polluting gets too expensive to maintain. Therefore, we find ways and alternative means to reduce our carbon emissions. Sure, sure, sure. Another thing that sort of struck me as I was uh, sort of, you know, you know, looking into it a bit earlier was was around that kind of question of free allowances, um, I suppose, sort of, you know, handing out uh, allowances to, to companies, which obviously every year it happens and every year, uh, you know, various uh, NGOs kind of complain about this sort of permission to pollute, essentially. How does, how does that work and, and what's the thinking behind it? So the main thing is that we don't want to, through the ETS or in effect carbon taxes, push industries overseas. As the price gets more expensive, we don't want companies that could just relocate outside the EU to then move the industry away and then us having to, to import. There's two reasons for that. Obviously, the economy, growth and production. And secondly, when we're producing inside the UK and the EU, there are a lot of tight regulations and guidelines in order to produce as cleanly as possible that don't necessarily exist in countries like China and India, who are not necessarily happy to pollute, but rather than steel production through gas, they might have steel production through coal, all just for cost reasons. And then we're importing these dirtier products and of course having to ship them across. So the free allocations are there in order to keep industry in Europe. And, and and presumably the number of sort of freelancers also diminishes every year. So at, at some point, presumably, I suppose the idea is that manufacturers are encouraged to reduce emissions domestically rather than just moving overseas. Does, does, does that work, you think? Does, is, does that, does that is, is, are they sort of managing to sort of thread that needle? Sorry, so are they able to thread the needle between reducing the emissions and being able to maintain production, but with lower carbon output? Yes, yeah, we are seeing that it actually is largely being quite successful. Um, I mean, it's a very hard line to tread because obviously it's not an ideal situation to be giving away free allocations to oil producers and big emitters, but it does in theory reward people that are changing to methods that are far more beneficial to the environment. So it's all based on a carbon leakage list that, um, that everyone can see and see how the formula works. There's an industry standard and based on the industry standard, that's the amount of free allocations you get. So certain companies are actually getting more free allocations than the emissions they produce because they put a lot of money and a lot of effort into reducing their emissions below a certain level, which actually means they're making money as they're being rewarded with free allocations that they can sell on the market because they're advanced um, technology and low carbon production method. So it's a, it's a sort of a reward for uh, bringing in that those more efficient processes, essentially. And then I suppose in terms of sort of, you know, what drives prices, I mean, I think, you know, every now and then I, I sort of see, uh, you know, sort of uh, these sort of phenomenal prices, you know, people sort of, you know, talking about the sort of new highs and things. What, what in your experience drives prices? And obviously, I mean, I suppose over the last, you know, uh, year or so, Europe's gone through a sort of a gas crisis, which has obviously been some time brewing. But I think, you know, things kind of really came to a head, obviously, with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In terms of those sort of higher gas prices, did that, does that feed straight through into, into higher carbon prices? In theory, it does. Yes. But it's not really been the case recently. It's been quite detached from a lot of different macroeconomic factors. I mean, towards the end of August, we hit prices of around £100 on the UK ETS. 
and now we're sitting around £55. At the end of August, we were looking at recession, the economy was terrible, energy prices were sky high, and then we saw a big fall off the cliff. We bounced back around the £70 level, um, got back up to £80, £85, and then since then we've just been going down and down since the end of March. And actually since the end of March, um, going by economic figures, we now know that we're likely to avoid recession. Inflation is gradually tailing off. So the economy is looking slightly better, which is good, obviously, for industry. Um, The actual macroeconomic effects recently have slightly detached themselves from the UK ETS price. And they're now more focused on external policy issues. So right now, the main reason for prices being as low as they are, having been as high as they were in August, is really just the lack of clarity as to where the scheme is going and the lack of government policy. Participants on the UK ETS aren't really seeing where the scheme is going to be and what it's looking like in the coming years, unlike, say, in the EU ETS, which has got, due to its size and because of the number of different players on the market politically, as well as investors and traders in the scheme, it's much easier to see what's going on and what the future looks like um, to analyse it and take positions based off that. Sure, sure, sure. You mentioned uh, a moment ago about the, the sort of differences, the the sort of between the EU ETS, obviously, which you know the the UK's kind of system kind of came out of, and obviously owes owes, owes something of a debt to. How, how how does how do these two markets compare? I mean, t- talking about sort of the financial speculators, is there is there sort of an incentive? Is there a possibility to sort of arbitrage those those, those different markets? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is. I mean, in August before the first price dump. Um, the premium in the UK ETS over the EU ETS was over £30. Now it's around minus £21. So we can see the huge difference there and the opportunities um, that would arise from that. How can you end up with such wild sort of uh, swings in, in, in sort of price and, and differences between these these two systems, which essentially should, it feels, you know, move kind of fairly closely together with uh, sort of fair, a, a presumably a sort of a fairly similar sort of industrial setup? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the UK was a major player in designing the EU ETS. And since then, I guess we've had the opportunity to take what we saw as the best of the EU ETS and use that to make our system in the UK ETS. Um, you know, with that, we, we tightened it, um, as we we're saying earlier, reduced the share by 5%, and then we reduced the allowances in the market by more every year compared to the EU ETS. Initially, from May 2021 until August 2022, we were seeing a lot of correlation between the two systems. The problem that we have in the UK ETS is that because of the lack of volume, there's not as many price signals as we have in the EU ETS. So really on the UK ETS, until maybe August 2022, most of the price signals we were getting was was from the EU ETS. But since then, it really has began to separate. There's been a lot of changes policy-wise going on in the EU. And as we're saying, the UK ETS doesn't have the same amount of transparency in terms of decision-making and thought process and what's going to happen and when it's going to happen in the UK ETS. So since then, the UK has slumped significantly faster and by over 50 euros more on the, than on the EU ETS. So there has been a big, big swing 
from August 2022 with the correlation between the two systems. I mean, those sorts of swings seem like uh, that must pose challenges for people in the market, right? I mean, I think, you know, how do you how do you sort of plan ahead? How do you, you sort of make those kind of big decisions without sort of price certainty? That is a complaint that you hear quite a lot from the installations themselves. And you speak to these guys and something that a lot of them would have preferred would have been some sort of tiered taxation system. Um, you could see that as maybe this year it would cost £50 per, per tonne, next year £55 and going up annually. But it would allow them to plan for the coming years. That isn't the case. And to be honest, it doesn't seem like it's going to change. We've taken the EU model and made it our own and it doesn't seem like there's going to be any long-term changes in this scheme other than maybe tightening the system and trying to increase the speed of decarbonisation. Really, you can understand why industrials would have problems. They're susceptible to pump and dumps in the financial market. They're susceptible to price getting totally out of hand. But really, the main thing you need to do is be very on top of it. You need to understand what can be happening long-term and really, the market is fundamentally long, so we're always going to expect prices to rise in the long run. So, so you might have big, big dips like right now, and it becomes an opportunity to buy to buy forward for for the years to come. the the, mar- the nature of the market is bullish, and it is going to stay like that. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, you know, just in terms of that sort of you know planning ahead and things, to what extent can can you, as as say an emitter, sort of hedge that sort of forward exposure? Is 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 that possible? Certainly, yeah. So, and I guess there's two main ways of purchasing. The first would be purchasing forwards in, in which you buy a future contract and when it comes to expiry, you're then transferred that allowance. And the other would be buying on spot. Um, a crucial point is that these allowances don't lapse. It's not as though if you buy too much this year, they aren't usable the following year. They'll remain on your account until needed. So if you do see a price opportunity, it's very easy to buy in bulk and purchase multiple years ahead and surrender or sell them when needed. You know, looking at that kind of question around, uh, I suppose, kind of the impact of, of the ETS on kind of commercial decisions, um, which I think is obviously kind of, you know, the drive, isn't it? I mean, I suppose, you know, as mentioned, cutting emissions is, is clearly part of that sort of race to net zero and, and, and plays an integral part in providing sort of direction to, to, to big emitters that they need to uh, focus on on becoming more efficient. Do you think that's actually having the right impact, right? Are we, are, we, are we actually seeing these companies moving away from, say, coal, say, gas to, I don't know, wind turbines and, and, and solar panels? The short answer is yes, it, it does seem to be working. A lot of installations are making it out of the UK ETS and many installations that were present at the beginning of 2021 are no longer in the system. And and that's because they're reducing their emissions and finding alternative um, production methods that reduce their carbon output. So yeah, it, it has been working. I mean, last year, initially because of the high energy costs, it was actually accelerated quite a bit because there were installations that, due to the high energy costs, were forced to cease or slow down production. And during this time, many of the firms um, use this as an opportunity to improve the production methods, switching to, to cleaner means. And so by the end of the stoppages, they were able to turn the engines back on 
And by that point, they'd managed to reduce emissions enough to get them out of the UK ETS system. Is that driven by, uh, you know, the, 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 those high prices on ETS or, or are there other factors? I mean, obviously, I suppose, you know, companies love making sort of uh, net zero pledges. That seems to be very much sort of the, the, the order of the day. Is, it, is, it, is the sort of that, that sort of pricing factor one factor or is there, is there sort of like, a, like, a, like, a, like an overriding factor? That certainly is one factor. I mean, 15 years ago and even longer as well, Prices were four or five euros and just not really a consideration. It was something that at the end of the year, you would sort of just look down the back of your couch and pay the small carbon tax at the end of the year. Now it's substantial. When it was trading up at £100, that's a huge, huge amount of money for any company. And even now at £55, it's still a big sum and something that does require a lot of consideration. So yes, I believe it has actually been a major factor in terms of reducing emissions and again, it might not be down to necessarily a desire to cut emissions. It's just the costs are getting so high that it's more financially viable to switch to greener methods. I mean, it's one of those things that, that really seemed to kind of come to the fore last year was the, you know, a newfound discussion around energy security, right? I mean, I think obviously the, the sort of, you know, the, those questions around gas into Europe and obviously the sort of knock-on impact on the UK. Is there a is there a, a sort of a, a, a risk to energy security from the ETS? I mean, I think you know, surely if 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 generators are sort of you know becoming more and more worried about paying that those those higher prices, does that does that run does that pose some new challenges to energy security in the UK? I don't think the UK ETS is going to affect the energy security. If you look at the UK's energy mix, coal is as now as low as low as we've seen in two hundred sixty years. I mean, that's a year after Mozart was born. Coal has been almost phased out of the UK. And if it wasn't for a little bit of coal usage last year, which was being exported to France, we would have had more renewables than any other energy source in the UK energy mix for last year. And that is going to be the case within the next couple of years anyway. Britain is one of the leaders in Europe on renewables and these sectors, offshore wind, onshore wind, and a little bit of solar as well, which obviously isn't as quite as useful as in say Italy. But these are all soon going to be Britain's main source of energy. I certainly agree that that clearly coal has has fallen, but it, it does feel like gas is is kind of having a bit of a sort of renaissance, doesn't it? I mean, I suppose you know we're talking again about sort of you know LNG imports. We're sort of reopening kind of gas storage, um, and and clearly mainland Europe kind of feels that sort of drive towards gas as well. Does uh, it does does gas get something of a free pass? It's an interesting question, and I'd say yes and no. I mean, gas is crucial. It's obviously a lot cleaner than oil or coal, but it is obviously dirtier than renewables. So it's sort of a halfway house, really. It's a big factor in terms of getting to where we want to get to. So if you're producing with oil or you're producing with coal, it's significantly more damaging to the environment than gas. So the way I see gas is a halfway house. And we're going to need to keep using gas until we have a renewable energy supply that is going to cover the UK and to cover all our production methods. And that's probably the same across Europe. In the UK, we are a lot further ahead than a lot of the rest of Europe. So I would say yes and no. Absolutely. Uh, and then I suppose, you know, looking, you know, sort of beyond that kind of power question and kind of coming back to that, that kind of question around leakages, right? I mean, I think, as we sort of mentioned at the beginning, that kind of challenge around how you keep sort of heavy industry, you know, domesticated and obviously sort of making progress versus um, putting the price up too high and, and, and driving uh, manufacturing to 
lower cost jurisdictions such as such as China and India is oh, do you think we're getting the, the the balance right I mean I think you know clearly we've there has been this incredible rise of of, of sort of manufacturing in in Asia over the last sort of you know 20 years which feels as, as like it's played like a significant part in obviously cutting emissions but also obviously there's, there's been that sort of shift in manufacturing are we, are we are we sort of moving in the right direction for the next sort of 10 20 however far away 2050 is so yeah that's the big question that's being asked in the uk right now in the eu we hear quite a lot about something called cbam which is the carbon border adjustment mechanism and the idea of this is to have almost a border surrounding the eu and actually we would suspect the uk as well because of its strong ets so the idea is that there'll be a carbon tax or carbon allowances you need to pay on entrance into the eu and uk based off your carbon emissions while producing. And this is likely to expand further and further. So right now in the UK and EU ETS, we're adding shipping and aviation. And then around the border of the EU and UK, we're going to have a new carbon carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is going to, in effect, pull the rest of the world into sort of UK-wide emissions trading scheme. That sounds like uh, people who are in the certification business are going to be capable kept uh, very busy when they're trying to check uh, new, new new factories in, say, China or Vietnam or wherever. It's certainly not a job I would envy. <laughs> and then I suppose, you know, sort of looking sort of beyond that, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there, 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 there are certain sectors now which are kind of the focus, power generation, manufacturing, aviation... Do you think? Do you think that the the ETS is going to sort of expand? I mean, I think you know agriculture is one that gets uh, gets get, gets raised a lot uh, in terms of in terms of sort of emissions. You know, people talk about uh, cows uh, burping and farting. Is 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 that something that we should uh, we should expect to see the ETS expand to cover as well? So agriculture isn't currently being talked about too much, but going forward, they are always looking at ways to add more and more sectors. I guess a problem with agriculture is it also comes down to food security, which is something that we already have enough problems with. So not something we want to add more pressure and more weight on. So I would say that for now, agriculture isn't really being talked about, but going forward, there's always scope. But yeah, it's not something that's really being discussed too much right now. Sure, sure, sure. And I suppose more broadly, what do you think that the future looks like for, for you know, power plans, the ETS, what, 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 what sort of uh, indications can you read from the, from the current market? So if you look currently at oil and gas companies, they're paying about 75% on their North Sea oil when you take into account the windfall taxes and the increased taxes that we're already seeing. So there is clearly a view long-term to move away from this. We're obviously trying to move our economy towards a greener economy. And a problem long-term is that we do still use, use gas, we just still use oil, but maybe a plan or thought process is just trying to price people out of using altogether. It's difficult at present because energy and electricity hits the grid and, and, and then it becomes one source, regardless of where it came from. We have regos and geos and ways of paying for green electricity, but in terms of where we see the energy market in the future, it is clearly going greener, going more renewable, and long-term, it feels like investment in more infrastructure is the way that the government want to look and in which companies are looking as well in order to move 
um, in order to avoid paying through the nose for carbon allowances. Sure, and and, and as terms of sort of how you think the uh, the, the future looks, it, it presumably sounds like 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 gas is 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 kind of on the way out. Although obviously there are going to be challenges around some manufacturing uh, sort of steel, glass, things like that, which which re- need really sort of high temperature. Do you think do you think that technology's got a part to play that? It does, but I think it was announced quite recently that Tata Steel and British Steel. We're getting subsidies somewhere between 300 and 600 million pounds in order to help their decarbonisation over the next decade. So I think the government does have a big role to play in terms of subsidies and benefits to companies that are very gas intensive in order to help us move away from these energy sources. So, yeah, I think that is a big factor. And I think even the gas heavy and oil heavy industries are going to move away from these these sources as long as they're given some sort of support or I suppose some sort of punishment for for not switching. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that's that's probably a kind of a, a good note to end on, and I think like a really sort of an interesting way to to, to think about it, bringing really bringing together those, those those kind of carrots and sticks, I suppose, that are that are on offer, right? The with the with the government sort of trying to say, on the one hand, sort of subsidising uh, through some sort of a, a transitional process for heavy manufacturing, whilst at the same time that uh, that 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 stick of uh, higher prices on the ETS. Uh, Making it, uh, making it sound felt. Thank you to our listeners for taking the time to tune in today. Uh, please let us know what you think to some of the ideas we've raised here. You can email outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, and if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too. You may already know that any, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from around the world of energy every week in our regular podcast episodes. So please do tune in and subscribe to that in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for today, for now, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.